Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't learn from success. It's a shitty myth that has emerged in our world that has frightened the living daylights out of people. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sullivan. Good women, great chat. Our guest today is a speaker, an educator, a social entrepreneur, but she's also a regular commentator in the media on leadership. It was her vision at one point to start a journey to Antarctica called Homeward Bound. Fabian Datner, welcome to Short Black. Lovely to be with you, Sandra. Real joy. Tell me about Homeward Bound. How did it come about and what's your goal? Okay, so (laughs) this is a true story. This is absolutely a true story. I dreamt Homeward Bound into life on October the 15th, 2015. And when I say dreamt it into life, I really dreamt it into life. So what happened was I'm lying in bed asleep and I have a dream. And in that dream, I'm in Antarctica. I had at that stage never been. And through the windows of the ship, as I 220-degree view of Antarctica, and in front of me were a whole lot of women in chairs on the floor, and I knew they were all women in STEM. I knew we were giving them a state-of-the-art introduction to leadership and the conversation of leadership and into sciences that informs what's happening to the planet and into their visibility in the world as leaders shaping our world for the greater good. I saw the banner Homeward Bound to my left and over my shoulder, I saw a film crew and I knew we were documenting how our world has come to where it is through the lens of leadership, what these women think needs to change and how our world would be different if indeed we were able to elevate the visibility of these women leading. And I woke up in the morning and went, my God, that was a pretty vivid dream. Turn to my beautiful philosopher husband, tell him the dream. At which point he goes, that was a lovely dream. Anyway, uh, what are we having for breakfast? <laughs> and as, as faith would have it, I didn't stop at that point and say, oh, well, that was a nice dream. He's not interested. I rang a young friend of mine, Dr. Jess Melbourne Thomas, who had recently done our women's program in Australia, Compass, and asked her if she thought it was plausible. And they say that the first follower makes the crazy plausible. Jess was the first follower. And what then happened is in the next three weeks, two other key people were brought into the story, Dr Justine Shaw and Dr Marianne Lee, both Antarctic experts, both had done numerous trips to Antarctica, and the four of us just got on. I remember sitting outside AAD's office on a bench and me finally saying, okay, and I put my hand out and I said, do we have a deal? Are we going to do this thing? And everyone shook hands. And that was how Homeward Bound started, with no money. From my side, a lot of expertise around uh, running organisations, the context of leadership and working with women. And uh, from Jess, Justine and Marianne's perspective, a lot of expertise about Antarctic science. 
Jess was to leave the project within six months because she uh, was pregnant with her first baby. But Justine and Marianne were to go on and be the real collaborators over the coming 18 months as we worked with a team of 10 brilliant volunteers to pull the first trip off. And it went from being a trip to Antarctica to becoming what is now a global initiative in 56 countries and representing 46 sciences. And we've just hit the 600 mark with the women. So it's grown exponentially. And it's an initiative of which there is a year of on the ground development and then the Antarctic component. But it's become bigger than Ben-Hur because it's it's not a, a year's development and then nothing. They then merge into this global community taking action in lots and lots of different contexts. There are lots of initiatives around the world that celebrate women and elevate women. What is it about Homeward Bound, do you think, that was so contagious and infectious that elicited such support? You know, Sandra, I think it's like literally winning the quadrilla. I have been a lay lover of science all my life. My husband and I, for six weeks a year, have disappeared with a backpack somewhere in, in wilderness, somewhere in the world, because there you find your soul, there you regroup, there you're nothing more than part of an ecosystem, and there's nothing complex, everything you need you're carrying. For as long as I can remember, coming out of my own trial by fire in the 80s, I've been obsessed with the concept of leadership, uh, the philosophy of it, the practice, and is what we have inherited from a military model of leadership that is quite old, sufficient to the world we've created and believing it isn't. And finally, um, mounting fury at the pernicious absence of women in leadership. No matter for all the rhetoric of 70 years, for the publications, the research, the insurmountable evidence that women make very good leaders, dare I say it, better on average than the average lad. They're still not being selected in anything like the numbers needed. How so and why so are women so important in the leadership space? Oh, well, I think at its most basic level, they have a predisposition to collaboration. We will never be the strongest, the biggest. We will never have the sharpest claws or the biggest muscles. Our collaboration is both bred in the bone and conditioned. We need each other and are safer moving together. And at some basic level, you will see it in kitchens at Christmas time. You will see it in the way, if something so silly as going to the toilet, you know, women will often go to the toilet together. They will often group into a kitchen with no instructions and work together on a meal. And that's not to say men don't do that. It's women commonly do that. So we have a collaborative instinct. I believe so, and I have good evidence to support that. The second one is, um, by nature, we're inclusive. I think we have a predisposition to feel at a deep level, to empathise with very diverse people. Uh, so we're collaborative, we're inclusive, and, of course, I think by nature we're predisposed to be legacy-minded because our children's future will always be more important to those who have children and to those who love children and to those who know people with children than will their own future. So we're collaborative, we're inclusive, we're legacy-minded, and research is showing repeatedly so that we're more trusted with assets, in particular money and people. Now, you've got great research examples of that, for instance, the famous Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, that 90% of microloans to women get repaid that if they make money on, you know, chickens in a village, 
laying eggs and they have more than they need, they'll share it with the community. When their male counterparts do it, they acquire the wealth, then they move to a better village. We see it in the initiative Barefoot Engineers, which is grandmothers with no education being taught to install solar power in villages. They learn it, they do it, and they do it for the community. During the pandemic, the eight countries that have dealt with the pandemic most effectively have predominantly been led by women. Why? Because we put community, collaboration and legacy ahead of money. But the focus of you going to Antarctica is the science world. How do you elevate women in science and what's the attraction for them to jump on board Homeward Bound? Why women in STEM? I think originally, just in terms of the dream, I wanted to eliminate anyone, anywhere, saying we didn't have the brain grunt. Because in my work I get paid for in the Datna group, we hear it over and over and over again that it's about competency. Whatever you do, you can't select women just because they're women. To which I want to say, but you've been selecting men for a very long time just because they're men. You just went to where you were doing it. And so I wanted to eliminate any debate about IQ. And so these are incredibly skilled women with a vast body of knowledge between them, vast from milking uh, poisonous spiders to make antibiotics to, you know, the protection of predators in Africa to whaling in Antarctica. These guys have the vast body of expertise and disciplined ways of thinking, genuinely disciplined, reasoned thinking. Well, given you're someone that loves to be an adventurer and clearly you have an environmental bent, the concept, the dream moment of Antarctica of all places, really is one of the last frontiers. It was so much more than that. So it's not a frontier. Here's, here's the thing about Antarctica. You can go to the Sahara and you are aware of the desert as a space. You can go to the Amazon, which I've done several times, and in the Amazon, you are aware of the place and its vital importance to the planet. When you go to Antarctica, it is the only place you can go to, in my opinion and the opinion of most people who go there, where you are aware of the planet rather than the place. In Antarctica, you are in another world. It is the engine house of the planet. And I want you to imagine your refrigerator is our world. And if you open up the main door of the refrigerator, inside your refrigerator are the vegetables and the sauces and the meat and the leftovers. And then when you open up the freezer in your refrigerator, there's the stuff you wanted to freeze and preserve. Close the doors. Now pull your fridge out and have a look at the back. That's Antarctica. That engine at the back of your fridge, which nobody ever sees or thinks about unless it goes wrong, is Antarctica. It is the engine house of planetary systems. It goes pear-shaped, the planet goes pear-shaped. It controls the major currents circling the planet. That's number one. Number two is it is home in summer to the greatest biological phenomenon anywhere on the planet. So you get this incredible cycle of, you know, phytoplankton, zooplankton, krill, tiny, tiny little shrimp, which in summer is the largest biomass on the planet. And then following that, this amazing range of extraordinary species who for 10 weeks, maximum 12 weeks, storm into this location, fill themselves up, breed in this vast environment, and then leave by the emperor penguins. So you're privy to a Mother Earth untouched untouched in theory by us. But of course, 
now, as, as David Attenborough has so heartbreakingly and eloquently said to all of us, this is the era of the Anthropocene. This is the human era. Every part of this planet is now controlled by us. And it's not a last wilderness. It is Mother Earth, and it's her heartbeat, and you can see it. And so when you get there, I promise you, you have no language. You stand on, on, on the deck of a ship and you look and there's a couple of swear words which are very common and then we've got amazing and incredible and that's it. And I'm a word mugger, no language to describe where you are. And then this profound sense of responsibility. How can I walk away and not take action? And that's why Antarctica is the picture frame for Homeward Bound. Clearly it would galvanise scientists to their very core of being what their passion is about saving the planet through whatever area of expertise they have. It's not about their individual science, it's about our collective action. And to that end, suddenly a zoologist is able to be part of, we're just having this happening now, 60 women collaborated for a marine protected park in Antarctica and presenting a paper to uh, the big global meetup recently in Tasmania about protecting Antarctica, which religiously the last several years has been and was again brought to its knees by Russia, America and China. They've also, we've got teams in uh, the committee of the parties meeting this year, what's called COP26, and that we've got probably 50 or 60 women across geographies collaborating for that. We've had papers written about fire. We've had papers written about green waste, about uh, carbon offsetting, and on and on it goes. So what's the application process like then to get on board Homeward Bound? So when we started, it was four of us sitting on my couch at home. Now we would typically have 400 applications for 100 spots, 400 plus, and there are probably 60 reviewers, and there are five stages of review. It's done on a point scoring system. I no, no longer have any involvement with the selection. A significant number of alumni are involved in the selection and it's designed by scientists. So you can imagine the algorithms that sit underneath it and the complexity of it. I suspect a few noses might be out of joint, particularly those belonging to men. This would be a dream adventure for any anyone, let alone scientists and their love of um, the environment and the world around them. You know, the interesting thing, Sandra, is men are phenomenally supportive. We've also just produced, which is another very big collaboration, we've just published after three years of development, 28 cold, hard facts that you should know about why women struggle to advance. It's three years of research, it's 600 pieces of research that were reviewed for it. And it's the irrefutable, inescapable truth for men and women about what women have to deal with. And we wanted to make it so that when you look at this talent, you also look at the challenges this talent faces to advance. Some examples, 71% of women in STEM have experienced some form of abuse. It is a harrowing and irrefutable fact. If your internal dialogue when you hear that fact is, well, not in my organisation, I will say to you, how do you know? What is your data? Most women in STEM have to deal with some order of sexual abuse. Uh, women with colour will have the fewest STEM degrees and you have to ask yourself why. This is where you will face what is now a, a common term, 
the complexity of intersectional or systemic bias. So it's not for lack of brains, it's not for lack of commitment or care, it's because, one, they deal with their colour, two, they deal with their gender. Consider the privilege you have as a man in your 50s if you're white, had good education, and you live in Australia or America, versus you're black, you're a woman in your America, or you're black, you're a woman from Uganda living in the United Kingdom. Finally, the one I would give you is there's an irony in success. Assertiveness in men is seen as an attractive attribute. In women, it's not. She's seen as bossy, you're seen as capable. You have children, you're seen as someone who's a reliable, capable and a committed family man. She's seen as unreliable. The children will take her away from work. So there is no one fact or five facts. There are 28 cold hard facts. So in the leadership space, when you're in front of a group of women, how do you get them to overcome those 28 profound struggles? I mean, sometimes it's just too daunting. Well, let's first of all, let's move away from science for a minute because there's much more to what I do than just science. The reality is of those 28 cold hard facts, probably all bar two are universally applicable to women generally. So we're coming out of an era where for three to 5,000 years, the predisposition since we have developed uh, agriculture, since we've started to settle into one place, is that the systems have evolved to bias against women. The difference is today, I think, we have the wisdom to look at this and see that what we are squandering is a capability. Today, what I say to women is this is not about your commercial value. It is not about equality. It's about sustainability. Our species isn't going to make it unless women everywhere rise up together to take their place at the leadership table. And so what we begin by doing is helping the women to know themselves cleanly and clearly, to come to understand how the stories they tell themselves about themselves might be holding them back from moving forward with other women and other men who support them. That's our first step. That is also true of all our work in Australia with our women's program. Understand yourself, number one. Number two is to do this together. Don't try and do it on your own. You don't need to do it on your own. It's like this podcast. You can't do this podcast on your own. You need a team around you to help it come to life. And it's a better team if they own the intention of the podcast together. So we do those two things and place a very high value on safety and collaboration. In Homeward Bound, we have a very big team of health professionals and psychiatrists. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
You often refer to the internal dialogue and that internal critic. How do you silence the internal critic? Well, I think you don't silence it. You understand it. Have you got one? I do. Sits on my shoulder every day. What does it say to you? I'm someone that um, constantly reflects and considers how things could have been done better. I sort of ruminate too much, I think. That's what the internal critic does. And then I remind myself I can't change what's done, but I can be better next time. Do you allow yourself moments of saying, I did that really well, I'm happy with that, or is it always that voice that says I could be doing it better? No, no, sometimes. Sometimes I'm, I'm quite happy with something, the way it's turned out or progressed. I allow myself to say, you know, good job, but I've always said in my business, you're only as good as your next bulletin, your next update, not your last. And I think that's allowed me to stay focused on improvement rather than feeling complacent. So a couple of things, because that's a common phenomenon with women, by the way. It's a really common phenomenon. And there is a quantum difference between the journey of becoming, the Buddhists would call it self-actualizing, the curiosity about how and where I can improve what I do, and the fear, or I think you just used the beautiful but word, Uh, But the fear of explaining, I progressed in my industry because I had that mindset. I progressed in academia because I am a perfectionist. I progressed as a leader in a business, operations, technology, you name it, because I'm meticulous about the detail. I follow through. I set myself high standards. And if I don't achieve them, yeah, I'm tough on myself and I improve it. And that's why I am where I am. We call that false attribution theory. You're probably where you are because you are articulate, compassionate, thoughtful, engaged, clever. You learn. You have an incredible capacity to learn, grow and develop. And you have great people around you. And incidentally, along the way, you probably make it hard for yourself because of that little voice on your shoulder. So when we talk about internal dialogue with women, if you are told often enough you're going to have to work harder than the men, you're only as good as the last thing you did, then what lives with us is a perpetual fear of failure. For some women, it's a perpetual fear of if you get too close to me, you're going to know I'm not good enough. So let me try and hide that fact from you. And let me prove to you and myself, incidentally, that I am good enough, although I'm never quite good enough. Or let me prove I can win and I'm going to win by beating someone else. For a very large number of women, they've got the opposite of that is they're constantly scanning the faces around them for approval. Do you like me? Do you approve of who I am? And the fear there is I'm only as good as the compliance I bring to the relationships I have. And a lot of women battle those two internal mental models. And I understand why. So we do a lot of work to make the internal dialogue transparent, to bring women together to to look at that safely. And then to understand how you break that pattern, how you stop blaming and judging other people for that voice, how you take responsibility for it, how blaming and judging throws your power away, how, you know, the monkey mind, when you go over and over again in your head, something that went wrong during the day, and it often happens during the night, you know, don't sleep well. And then we look at old stories, stories in families that are just stuck. It's like you're organising a wedding or Christmas and somebody says, whatever you do, don't put Auntie Pat and Paul together. They hate each other. And somebody says they do. Yeah, they had a terrible fight 40 years ago and haven't spoken since. How do you know they don't like each other? They haven't seen each other for 40 years. 
or they will uh, members of the family will say when you dream of climbing Mount Everest, oh my God, that's hysterical. You can't even walk to the corner milk bar without gasping. And so old stories hold us, hold families, hold our psychology in a particular place. And then finally, our own repeating stories about ourselves. I'm no good at maths. I can't write. I will never be a broadcaster like Sandra. Well, no, probably, because Sandra's got 30 years of learning, growth, development and investment. If you want to do the same thing, of course you can be a broadcaster, but you have to be determined, committed and go fight for it. I'll tell you something I probably haven't shared with a lot of people, but when I first started out, I had never dreamed of doing the job I'm doing and being in front of a camera, there's not an acting bone in my body. And um, I needed to get some voice training. And what she did, this woman, was actually unpack my my fear of failure. And I didn't know I had it. I'd always, I wouldn't say excelled in the sporting space, but, you know, I was very active and enthusiastic. Enthusiasm overcame most challenges for me, but I was always part of a team. In this role, I had to be just me. And when I realised I would be in front of other people, I got so emotionally overwhelmed, I couldn't speak. And she really made me realise that I was fearing failure so desperately, I almost froze. I guess it's the equivalent of sort of stage fright. And what what helped me overcome that moment was that I actually wasn't going to die if I failed. (laughs) I would just start again. You only have one life to live. And would I live a life of regret not having a crack? Do you know what I mean? That is such an important story to share. I have a theory that what we do over a lifetime of you know being curious about ourselves and becoming is we close the gap between the stimulus and the response. So once upon a time in a family way back when there was an expectation of a certain standard and sport is a is a classic in families rewarded for winning. And what can happen in a competitive mindset is you're either winning or losing. So you've got this bipolar picture of yourself as winning or losing. But of course, we know that people who give into that sub-optimise achievement and that the greatest achievement any human will ever make is when they move towards incremental gain. And incremental gain is that 1% mindset that's so famously captured by the very successful coach of the British cycling team that went on to win the Tour de France back-to-back with the following Olympics. It's about tiny wins every day and saying this is how life goes. And I have a theory that it's an upwardly moving spiral dynamic and the Sandra of today is not the Sandra of 10 years from now going forward as she's not the Sandra of 10 years ago. And what is the difference? She keeps learning. She keeps growing. She keeps evolving. And, you know, I would be saying to someone like you, of course, you come to know you're never alone. I'm always there. The women, the men who care for and watch you are your family. They are your audience. They are with you. They stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And any mistake we make makes it easier for them to love and care for us. It's the fear of trying to do it right that shuts us off from people, not the mistakes we make. 
So, Fabian, I hadn't wanted to speak to you today for a self-help lesson, although you are helping me tremendously, but I do often hear the contradiction in myself because over the years I've always said I would rather be the tortoise than the hare. It's not about the destination, it's always about the journey. And those profound learnings early on allowed me to allow myself to fail. And I don't think you ever enjoy failure, but I always look for the lessons in my failures to be able to improve, get better and enjoy the journey. Ultimately, though, it's all a confidence game, isn't it? No, no. First of all, I don't think there's such a thing as success and failure. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot be who you are without lots of incremental mistakes. It's just not possible. And this notion of success and failure sets up for us there's some ultimate way to be the best. And my theory is if there was a best, we'd still be in caves chewing on mammoth bones. There is no best that we know of. You just keep going. So I want to challenge a few things you said. First of all, it's not a self-help conversation. It is, I think, the single most important conversation women can have together. As I have this with you, I think about myself. I think about my own vulnerabilities and the things that I've made mistakes on. I will say, frankly, that the journey of Homeward Bound has been the most complex, the hardest journey I've ever been on. And it's done between the age of 60 and 66. I had to learn things about myself, about the audience that I had committed to help, about uh, my naivety in a global context. You know, I now work on a global stage. And, you know, six years ago, I was an Australian. And so lots of mistakes and learnings. Just this morning on the phone to the most extraordinary woman from Ghana, who is the Ghanese ambassador to Brazil, or that's paused now because of the elections, but the most celebrated leader I've talked to for a long time. And I feel humble and a baby in her presence. We don't need to frame things as success or failure because it places such a high expectation. So I want to put to you, if you had lots of failures, I want to say to you what I would say to a child, thank God. Thank God you have. Congratulations. Now, tell me about them. No, literally, Sandra, you do not learn from success. It's this shitty myth that has emerged in our world that has frightened the living daylights out of people. It said there is a way to be successful, a way to look, the right weight, the right clothing, the right makeup, the right something, and it's not true. It's a myth, and it's a commercial myth. Because if I can persuade you there is a right way to do something, you're going to spend a lot of money pursuing that right way. Instead, there is a way to learn and grow. And so I don't believe in self-help. I believe in us helping each other. I believe you're helping me now. You're sharing this message. We are helping a lot of other people. You sharing your story is one of the most powerful things that women can do together. We massively under, uh, underestimate the power of that. When you share your journey of your little monkey on your shoulder and the battle with success and failure, there's zero judgment in it. I just think that's a a powerful moment and I learned something about it. Mine is the competitive approval conversation. So I had a, a beautiful father who I loved deeply. He was my best friend until he died. And um my two brothers didn't have the same journey that I had with my father. But he came to everything that I ever did, every sporting event, and I'm naturally good at sport and not interested in it at all, not interested in competitive sport remotely. But he would be standing in the audience somewhere, always taller than everybody else, 
And I would hear him saying, Fabi, run faster, you're winning. And I would look over my shoulder just to make sure I was ahead of the person who could beat me in order to win, in order that he would sweep me into his arms and he would love me. And so his love was the best best experience in my life and it was something I could see my brothers didn't get. So I came to believe that to win approval, I needed to be successful. I needed to win. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I had this awakening moment where I saw play out with a group of very senior leaders this moment where they were arrayed in front of me. I was doing a special exercise. I'm coaching them on storytelling. And I I remember to my dying day, this guy gets up who I know really well, who was their marketing director at the time. He tells a story and I'm there to coach 13 leaders, all men, on how to tell plausible stories that people will believe and follow. He gets up and tells a story and it's nonsense. He's pulled that out of his butt. He's done no work at all. I know that. He knows that. He knows I know that. So he finishes. Everybody's laughing in the audience because it was a great story. And I turn to him and I say, Paul, could you explain to me a little bit about how that story connects to this exercise? He's about to fess up. From across the room, the IT director says, thanks very much, Fabian, but on this occasion, we don't need to hear from you. The adrenaline rushes through my system. Suddenly, I'm 10 years old. I lose all my resourcefulness. All I can think is, oh, my God, they don't like me. I'm going to fail. And my mind becomes like a deer in a headlight, and I panic. So I simply said, well, thanks very much for that, you know, John. I think on that basis we'll close the night up and I'll see you all in the morning. And I walked out of the room. I got into my hotel room and I rang my husband. I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm going to lose my job. It's horrible. Now, it doesn't matter what happened then because lots of amazing things happened with those leaders and myself. What matters then is that I realised, oh, my God, my father has been dead for 10 years and I am responding to this world as if it was still here. I've got a suitcase of clothing that doesn't fit me and everywhere I go, I'm dragging it with me. Put it down. It's not who I am. And so I began the journey of putting that suitcase down. Your dad was an MI5 agent. He was a wonderful storyteller. And he tells a very funny story about how he got into MI5, which he thought was hysterically funny. Is that they have a, a big exam and all the entrants are given a piece of wood, a small piece of fabric and a nail, and they're told to build the boat. He looked at it in the space of 45 seconds, said, this is ridiculous, and walked out. That's how he got selected into MI5, was not accepting a black and white instruction to do X when it was silly. Now, I think the reason why he got selected, he spoke fluent German, and he was English, and he was an expert on the Nazi party. So we knew, I knew about that. We had a huge, huge collection of really interesting literature. Books were a big part of, of our growing up. But my mother was an artist. And so we had this wonderful dance between theatre and art. And my tiny five foot five, redhead, beautiful, sweet smelling, fabulously dressed mum. And my six foot five, you know, clumsy father who would always have, from an Orthodox Jewish background, who would have schmaltz herring for breakfast and carry the schmaltz herring in his hands from one counter to another with my mother hysterically behind him cleaning up because she hated fish. So we grew up with that wonderful sense of theatre and drive 
But with my father, I think I learned a lot about basic military um, principles, intelligence principles, which stand me in good stead to this day, you know. Never make your mind up in a hurry. Scan the environment. Read the faces. Pay attention to available data. Don't form an opinion prematurely. Be courageous in your actions. So I don't describe myself as confident. I don't want to be confident. I think confident people are often stupid. It's silly. Well, confident about what you know today, you can't grow. But I would describe myself as courageous. And, you know, the French word for cœur, heart, rage, passion, courage, I'm passionate in my intentions. And I got a lot of that from him. You know, when he died, it was like this amazing human being got up from the table and left, and that chair is still empty at my table. I miss him most days of my life. When we look at Homeward Bound, how many Australian women are trying for those limited spaces and is there any unconscious bias to putting more Aussies in the... There wasn't so much unconscious bias in the beginning for Australians. That's just because it was born in Australia, more Australians applied. But because we are so deeply committed to a model of leadership that is inclusive, we've positively discriminated against Australians this round. So we had 150, 60 apply and only 15 got on board to allow more international representation. But uh, a little sneaky thing, we're looking at something at the moment as a regional pilot, so there's more to come. There is a real fascination for young women at the moment with maths and sciences. That must be joyful news to you. Yes, it is, but so too is the the joy of seeing 70 and 80-year-olds participate. I'll give you another little thought about young ones is that is a male construct, in my opinion. I'll give you a real provocative picture. I think women at their best are a series of concentric circles. And we are, apart from the other primates, we're the only species, apart from whales, that live a third of our lives unable to reproduce. And so as women get older, their job is to hold the community together, to bring calmness and wisdom to community, kindness and presence and to kick out the disruptors, including the young bucks who are not helping the community, to help us find food, move forward together. Matriarchs make human community stable. I think young people hold a body of expertise that you and I don't have around technology and its application. We're meant to do this together. So I now don't talk ages anymore. I don't care what your age is. I care what you do. I care how you help. That's all. What a joy it has been to talk to you this morning, Fabian Dutton. A wise woman with great advice and insights into not just a woman's journey, but I guess as a species, our journey. I mean, you remind me to constantly ask yourself a question about where you're at, why you're there and what you want to do. Thanks so much for your time, Fabian. Thank you. What a pleasure. Great pleasure. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.